Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Today, I have something to tell you all, which is you are champions. <laughs> you have made it all the way through Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. <laughs> if you have been following closely, you also may have watched a film adaptation of the legendary Broadway musical. And in both of those categories, you are conquerors. Nay, even more than conquerors. Well done, all of you. Behold, you have heard the people sing. (laughs) You have heard the people sing. I mean, have you? Have you heard the people sing? Did you hear the people sing? Do you, in fact, hear the people sing? (laughs) Today, our goal is to just have fun talking about this great musical. A little backstory from me and Megan we grew up with the Broadway musical because mm-hmm. uh, the the father of us all, uh, <laughs> Adam Andrews, None of us was all, actually. when he was in when That's he was also in a line from college, the musical. I saw it. <laughs> yeah. See. Ah. Yeah. It's gonna be. We're merry punsters today. Oh yeah. So no, my dad was in college a writer of musicals. He wrote two musicals over the course of his college career, inspired by the. Schoenberg and Bubliol triumph that was Les Mis. And so we grew up in a household where there were show tunes everywhere, some that my dad had written, but mostly ones from Les Mis. And it got to the point where we were like comparing recordings because of oh, yeah. course the show starts on the West End. And so there's a cast from the original West End recording or the London recording. And then it makes the leap over into the States and joins Broadway. And there's a mm-hmm. slightly different cast with different supporting players. And then there's a 10th anniversary and then there's a 25th anniversary and there's all these different recordings of the musical. And we were listening to them all and cutting together playlists like, okay, well, I really like this Fontaine. Right. But but the Javert that plays in the show where this Fontaine happens is terrible in comparison to the original Javert. And so we would cut together all these tracks and we were just mega fans of Les Mis. So when the film comes out starring Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe and Anne Hathaway and so on, we were, well, Megan, what would you say? Were we primed to enjoy or were we a little critical? I think both. I think that criticism actually is the heart of joy in a lot of ways in the Andrews family. (laughs) (laughs) I think having a, an opportunity to be widely read and educated in a field makes it more fun to interact with new pieces of art in that field. And that's kind of the Andrews take on literature. In fact, we love to interact and go, you know, have fisticuffs about various ideas that we feel familiar with. And that's definitely true in Les I remember being so familiar with the, I think it's the 10th anniversary cast Mm -hmm. recording with Colm Wilkinson, 
as Jean Valjean, Valjean that yep. we listen to the most. Even like imagine a scene, you guys, Ian and I are two of six kids and we were homeschooled and our house was big and always messy. And so there would be big cleaning days where we were basically the forces that mom amassed to conquer this this castle on the hill that was just a disaster. She's a little Napoleon and She's we are Napoleon. troops. We are the troops. You know, I'm not sure how faithful, depending on the day, but if she turned on... <laughs> If we if we turned on Les Mis in the main floor, you could hear it all over the house and right. kids would take parts like, you know, your little cassette in your mind, mopping the floors. <laughs> so Molly Kate and I memorized that one song that's counterpoint between Javert and Jean Valjean. They're facing off after Fantine has died and it's very dramatic. And I yeah. took the part of Javert. And Molly took the part of Jean Valjean. And to this day, if I call Molly Kate on the phone and with no preamble, I just say, Valjean, at last, <laughs> we, we see each other, other plain. <laughs> she will answer me with the entire song. <laughs> so I was delighted to find the other day as we were watching the movie version of the of the show in preparation for today's episode that that song is a favorite of another member of our crew <laughs> emily <laughs> is my favorite well and that is connected to another question that i feel like would be fun to go around and answer which is who if you could play anyone of these characters in the broadway production and like for me, that means like imagining that I could actually sing the part. So it means I can be whoever, whoever I want because I couldn't at this moment do any of them. <laughs> Who would you want to be? And my answer is Javert because I think my favorite line of the musical to sing would be the one where he's like, you wear a different chain. <laughs> Nailed it. This is just really fun. Oh, it's such well, a before, fun slide. Before we answer that question, which I think would be really fun, I want to hear your background with the show, Emily, because yeah, Emily. you didn't get raised in a giant house on top of a hill singing it at the top of your lungs, I presume. I did not, know. I didn't encounter the musical until one of my close friends in college uh, took us all or invited us all to her hometown in, in Ohio to see the touring production of it on Broadway. So we all bundled into a car and drove from Michigan to Ohio and uh, stayed at her house and saw the musical. And that was my first exposure that's to so it. That's so fun. So, wow, that is, that's some rarefied air that you're breathing. <laughs> For your first experience with the musical to not be a recording or a video, right. but to be seeing it on Life. Broadway with no context. I mean, that is well, amazing. But it wasn't, it wasn't like you guys were introduced to it by hearing like Cole Wilkinson sing it. And this was, you know, this was the touring cast. Like, <laughs> right. Sure. And it they're wasn't all professionals, Cole. but it wasn't Cole Wilkinson. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember my question. Continue on. It's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I saw that. That was before the movie came out. So that was early on in college. And then obviously fell in love with the music and the story. And I remembered my question and it is funny. So I'm going to okay. ask it. Do it. <laughs> Did you, Ian, this made me think of it. Ian was like, you got dropped in live with no context. Did you think that this was about the French Revolution? <laughs> yes, 100%. Okay, okay. <laughs> You were like, is the freaking I get guillotine. There are barricades, but where the heck is the guillotine? <laughs> yeah, that's oh. a whole other conversation that we have to have about the musical. Like, it really, you have to really 
be paying attention and or know your French history to okay, know what's going on. I don't know though. Let's do, let's do that now because <laughs> as I was rewatching the film, which I th- well, in a second here, I want to talk about the Broadway show, which we've all seen, versus the film because I yes, think there are course. some interesting nooks and crannies there in the differences between those adaptations. But what I will say is the musical has it has a quirk that I appreciate, which is that it doesn't find it necessary to distinguish between the French Revolution of the guillotine and this particular uprising that Hugo zeroes in on. It cuts away some of the historical content. And I don't know that it hurts anything because the way the musical treats it is this is a human drama about relationships and people and justice and mercy and love. And let's make those things all the clearer by cutting away extraneous details. And I realize that you can't really do that in a novel and I'm not criticizing Hugo for including all of that, but I, I don't know that I disagree with the writers of the musical with Bublil and Schoenberg as they say, mm, this historical stuff is not frankly all that necessary to the real heart do, of, the, of the musical. They do try to include it. Like they, those num the dates that flash on the screen in the movie, those appear on the curtains in, yeah. the, in mm-hmm. the Broadway show. So they're like, Hey, not 1790, whatever it is like this. Is- <laughs> <laughs> I just immediately, I don't know. It just left my brain, whatever the, when is Bastille day? I forget. I just am impressed that you tried. Well, and maybe some of that is necessary because in order for us to see these revolutionaries in a wholesome, happy light, instead of as wanton murderers of the aristocrats, distinguishing Mm. between the French Revolution proper and this uprising might be helpful. But I don't know that it goes a lot beyond that in the musical. Well, there is. And then I was I was paying attention this time when we watched it. The next uh, our, our major introduction to the historical context actually comes from Gavroche when in the transition between Jean Valjean's backstory and the introduction to Paris and Gavroche, if you're paying attention, takes some time to tell you, you know, we had a king, we killed the king. Now there's a new king and things aren't going well. He's no again. better than the last. Yeah. Right. I yeah, could actually exactly. sing it to you if you wanted I, to endure I, it, but I won't make really it. Want to it to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is this idea, I don't know, he, they do take a moment to situate us in the same way that the book does to say this is a this is a tragic moment. But when, you know, uh, Marius is singing, I, I don't know what you died for. My friends, my friends, don't ask me. We do know that there is there is something coming like this is a, a stop on the way towards ultimate freedom on their parts. A liberated France. A valiant effort to be true to the history, Emily. We appreciate you, oh. <laughs> but you're right. It doesn't. You have to. You have to know what you're looking at, and you have yes. to pay well, very I close guess attention. The point that I was making is, no, you don't have to in order for the musical to actually well, affect you, right? Yes, like, that's right. true. Yes, that's, that's a true. that's an advantage, and it's and it's specific to the medium, of course. But it's a great medium, maybe for that reason. Well, I think it. What Emily is saying, if I could interject, is that it deepens your appreciation of the the play that they've created if you do have the historical context. If you see that date flash on the screen and it is significant to you and you yeah. understand, then all of the depth that would have come had you read the novel would be applied to this beautiful relational moment. But I also see your point, Ian, that it's not necessary 
in the way that you have to trudge through it in the book in order to get back to those characters. They simplify it for you. They the, the pacing is because of the change in medium so much faster. Yeah. And I don't know, they've made interpretive choices for you and now they're handing you a reading of this story. And that reading is very much no 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 Hugo this was all about your characters. This is about mm-hmm. the this is about the struggle of the individual more so than the struggle of France. Well, right. yeah, and part of that is it would be really hard to personify the sewers and write a song about cloaca. That would be really difficult. Oh man, right? I just I was really hearing the word cloaca in my head. <laughs> that would have been tough. I don't know. Like, I, did the- you? Oh man, I don't want to go too soon. But did you notice that they did try? to be reminiscent of that big long passage about the sewers and they did show you the scene in the movie version mm-hmm. that i'm thinking of they showed you the scene where jean valjean is holding marius up out of the sewers in a cross pose and drowning yeah. well there's actually so i think that that's a really fascinating observation that even the difference between the broadway stage musical and the movie like you can tell that the movie makers took extra care to mm-hmm. read the book and put in some like Easter eggs for those of yes. us who have read the book. Yeah. That scene, the, the, elephant. the elephant that Gavroche oh, stays in, the handkerchief you pointed out when we were mm-hmm. watching that Marius takes. They're just, you can tell that these filmmakers took the time to read the novel in addition to studying the musical, yeah. which is yeah. really cool. I didn't notice this time watching the movie. I think one of you guys pointed out to me actually that the elephant that we see, we get to see as the troops are passing by Gavroche's neighborhood and Gavroche comes climbing out of it. Later, when the barricade has been built and you get a shot of the barricade coming towards it, the elephant's tusks are on either side of the barricade, Mm -hmm. which I thought was such a cool thematic moment that you could spend hours thinking about that now Gavroche's home has become the barricade. barricade. Yeah. The streets have become the barricade. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. Well, first of all, let's answer Emily's question. Megan, who would you play if you could play anyone? Go. Oh, my goodness. Well, Possibly because we've already talked about my childhood uh, experience with this musical. I would love to say publicly that since Molly isn't here, I get to be Eponine. (laughs) (laughs) Conflict. Age old conflict. We would trade off. But but yeah, Eponine was definitely. Well, because in the musical, she is interestingly portrayed as the thwarted heroine in a lot of ways. Of all of the female characters in the story, I mean, Fontaine bites the dust early, so you don't really want to be here. Right. <laughs> you do get a pretty good song, but you do. It's true. She was our she was our runner up that we wanted to be, but no one wants to be Cosette. I mean, in the musical, no. Cosette doesn't have much personality, and also, who in the world could ever hit her notes? I mean, we're a family full of altos, so yeah, <laughs> that is a true soprano part. But yeah, Eponine is the way that they cast her. She's sympathetic, she is noble, she is tragic, and she's everything a teenage girl wants to be, you mm-hmm. know? They also have Mary's flirting with her more. Like, in the book, yeah, he barely do. even knows that she exists, and he and it makes sense that he wouldn't notice her because she's just in the background. But, like, the musical portrays them as though they were friends, and mm-hmm. that they have a history together, and a little banter. And so, mm-hmm. of course, he comes off looking bad. <laughs> We'll talk. We'll talk yeah. about those details in just a second. But it's my turn to answer this question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I am, okay. All right. I am absolutely torn. Always have been, because for me, it's which of these great songs do I get oh, to yeah. sing? If mm-hmm. I again, like Emily said, if I had a voice to do it, which of these great songs would I get to sing? 
And no matter which character you choose, you're missing something awesome, right? Like, so probably it would probably be Valjean. I want the Valjean part because I get to sing the <laughs> prayers. Right? You want to sing Bring Him Home you and you want to use your home. falsetto, for goodness That's sake. right. It's just going to be absolutely beautiful. On the other hand, nothing would be anywhere near as much fun as playing Tenardier. <laughs> <laughs> and frankly, his parts are pretty easy. I think I could do that now. So, I, so I'll say Tenardier. That's what I'll say. That's my choice. Mm. There has just never been a better Tenardier than Sasha Barracudin. <laughs> Dude, he's so good. <laughs> so good. Oh, incredible. Okay, so let's go. Maybe we start with Tenardier. Let's let's talk about these characters and how the musical portrays them and whether it is, I, let's think of three categories, faithful or interpretive or plain bad. Hmm. Let me think of that. Okay, sure. Let's start with faithful, Tenardier. Faithful, interpretive, and bad. All right. Well, when I think of the Tenardiers, I think of the quote Megan read to us in our last episode of uh, the Tenardiers. And Barely how... a woman, it was said. <laughs> <laughs> no one would have thought to say this is a woman. Yeah, there um, it is. I, there is an element of humor in the way that he portrays them, but like they, the musical writers took that and cranked it up to 100. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, there it is much over exaggerated that like in the book there is much more of a tragic element to their characters and that that's there too but like the humor is occasional right they're sinister in the book actually right they're not sinister so much in the well they get to be our comedic relief because for heaven's sake this is a musical and it's super dark and heavy and so we have to lighten it up miserable for people yeah (laughs) right yeah yeah. So they become like our our clowns, our Shakespearean clowns in the play. Yeah. So would you so would you'd call it interpretive then? They've taken some liberties. I would say it was probably a choice for the tone to make mm-hmm. the the play more enjoyable. And I and I love it. I think it's great. The line that they say at the end when you all are gone We'll still be here. This idea that like yeah. they become like they did catch on. The musical writers did catch on to the fact that they are the fallen nature of humanity, right? They're the baseline. Lest we think that the enlightenment could save us all. Like there's always going to be this baser element of human nature. Mm-hmm. And maybe the only thing we can do about it is laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's a good read. Okay. Yeah, in the book, the sewer system is supposed to be an image of that great leveling mm-hmm. of man, that down in the sewers, everyone's the same. Um, and I think that Tenardier's presence in the sewers, even for that brief, brief moment, associates him with that greater theme or that greater conversation from the book. What The only thing he says, I mean, basically, he comes upon Jean Valjean and Marius in the sewers, and it's very, very brief compared to all that we get in the book. But what he says is, thank goodness, I saved you. And then he gives them directions and they take the other way and that's it. But if you've read the book, it is a, is a really rich moment. Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay, who's next? We got to save the big ones for last, I think. Let's go Gavroche. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting that in both in the musical and in the movie, they give no reference whatsoever to Gavroche's parentage. There are even scenes where he is in the same room as Eponine and there's no acknowledgement whatsoever that they have a relationship. Mm-hmm. So they've actually edited it out. What did you guys think of that? Great question. Emily, what do you think? 
It, he is kind of our narrator in the musical, I think, or a chorus, maybe. He, mm-hmm. It allows him to become detached in an everyman figure in a way that maybe it would just become overcomplicated if they tried to explain that the Tonardiers were his parents. Like, yeah. you're only working with a couple hours here, and that, like, if you say, okay, the Tonardiers are his parents, well, now, if you've never read the book, now you have questions like, is he as wicked as them? Is right. he, do we need to associate him with the character qualities of Eponine? But instead, by separating him, they allow him to just be kind of like Paris incarnate. Right. Well, I think that's a good answer. I, as I was thinking about it, wondered at the lack of connection to Eponine because they do let him be very dear to the other people in the mm-hmm. barricade scene. And right. Eponine is there. Like yeah. there are members of the crew on the barricade who are sobbing about what becomes of Gavroche. They're very close and personally connected to him. But I like your interpretation that if he's a representative of Paris, then even that is thematically significant, that these boys, these college boys, are so invested in the success and and victory of Paris as an idea that they're sobbing, they're weeping about its fate. Right. And I think if Gavroche is that personified, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, on a third note, I think that... One of the things this musical does is say, okay, we've got a title, Les Miserables, right? And we know, having read the novel, that pretty much every character in this story is the miserable, the miserable one, right? There aren't, there's not really high and low so much. Hugo's trying to level everybody, like you were just saying with the sewer imagery. Mm -hmm. But in a musical presentation, they found two poles to anchor the title. And it's Cosette in the beginning when she is a teeny tiny child and is beset by all of these evils. And then she hands it off to Gavroche about halfway through the story. And then he is another Mm -hmm. tiny helpless child image of of human misery. And so I think it makes sense to disassociate him from his family because we're looking at these two children and their fates and the way that their fates are pushed around by all of the grownups. So it makes sense to me. I think it's a very elegant way to summarize a thematic point that the novel was that, was truly making. Yeah. Which, Again, that has to be in there. Which helps me be okay with the fact that like the image of the, the poster image of the musical is little Cosette with her yeah. flowing hair and her broom, even though you're like, A, I hate this character. B, this is the worst <laughs> song in the musical. Why is this the image? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gavroche. Shall we talk about Cosette? Yeah, let's talk about Cosette. <laughs> Interestingly, she is not a huge character in the musical or the stage play. She's got a lovely song when she's a little tiny girl, although Emily hates it. She thinks it's whiny. Yeah, I don't think Um, Castle on a Cloud is all that pretty either. Well, I think it's kind of haunting in the moment. It's atmospheric. Haunting is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an aria by any means, but it communicates what it's supposed to about her situation. Anyway, she's got that one song when she's a little kid, and then it's a heart full of love, right? Heart full of love in, mm-hmm. in the second half of mm-hmm. the musical. And that's all. That's all that we really hear from her besides yeah. a little counterpoint now and then. And that silence was kind of, I don't know, that's appropriate choice. I mean, I yeah. would say it's appropriate because it, I can I can see these guys sitting down to write a musical, reading the novel and going, what is this character doing? I mean, Hugo, <laughs> you punk. You have written mm-hmm. in some ways the woman besides F- Fantine, the woman of the of the piece. And we can talk about Eponine in a second. But the woman of the piece and she is shallow and vapid and (laughs) one-dimensional and what do you expect us to do with this man like i can see him doing and so but okay into a heart full of love though 
it fascinates me, and this is maybe drawing on a slightly different conversation that we can have more fully later, but the way that they construct that melody is that it is likewise simple until Eponine joins the chorus. Mm -hmm. It's a three-person song, right? And with her melodic interposition into the tune, it gains depth and significance and dissonance and the tune Concept. starts to be it's something other than simple and pretty and starts to mm -hmm. be gorgeous and moving when Eponine joins it, which I think is, that's a great thematic comment on the, right. on the way that Hugo drew these characters. Hmm. Well, and that is an element from the story. I mean, frankly, whether we can talk about Marius in a moment, whether Marius ever <laughs> acknowledges it, yeah. we, the readers, do experience a love triangle of sorts. Mm -hmm. And it's thwarted from the very beginning, and there's never any chance for us to root for it because mm -hmm. of Eponine's depth as a character. She's already too far gone to be a human being in some ways. But she does imagine a scenario where she and Marius end up together, and that pathos is present. Oh, yeah. In Eponine's character. So they were drawing on something real and basically saying, we think this is the most interesting part of, of this interplay between characters. Yeah. And so we're going to highlight it Cosette is not the most important figure. But back to what you were saying, Ian, about like baby Cosette being important as a symbol. I think maybe grown up Cosette is also a symbol mm. of purity that's lasted even in this scenario yeah. and hope, therefore, to all the characters around her and... She is. She is just a heart full of love. That's what she is in the in the character, you know. Yeah. And I do think there is a place for that, like we discussed long and and in great depth through our analysis of the story. So I guess I would say interpretive of mm -hmm. Cosette's character and right on the nose for what Hugo intended. Yeah, I think that's fair. The other thing that every single production has done. Yeah, to my knowledge, is reverse the physical qualities of Fantine mm. and Cosette. In the novel, if I remember correctly, Fantine is a blonde and Cosette is a brunette. Mm. And they switch that. In the movie, we have the great Anne Hathaway as Fantine and then Amanda Seyfried, the, this shining mm -hmm. angelic blonde, as Cosette. And that seems to emphasize that point as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, for better or for worse, the, the blue-eyed blonde stands in as... Like this An angel. angelic figure. Mm -hmm. And she's yeah. more important for not in herself, but for what she is to Jean Valjean and to Marius and to everyone around her than she is as a character herself. Right. Yeah, that, that beautiful, one of the ending lines for Jean Valjean, where he says to Cosette, I am only a man who learns to love when you were in my keeping. Mm -hmm. So basically she is, she is a heart full of love that she offered to him and drew love out of him. That was her purpose in the yeah. story. And his response is, is the right one, to be grateful for that opportunity. But again, we, we feel the pathos of that when another character is interacting with her. Never is she on stage by herself. No, it's true. Don't fret. Tell me where you live. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Not a way to Guys. teach children how to interact with strangers in the woods. If a man comes up to you and you're in a dark wood by yourself and he says, tell me where you live, don't. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't tell him where you live. Oh, my goodness. I did love, though, like, we don't actually get that scene in the musical, in the Broadway version. That's right. We don't get that scene That's right. where Jean Valjean finds Cosette in the woods and takes her bucket and, and grabs her hand and they mm -hmm. walk off together. And given that we made so much of it in the book, yes. I was delighted to find that the guy who read it and then produced this movie also found that to be central. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Okay. Marius. 
he becomes a hunk in the musical in a way that he is completely just a fop in the book. And in the Broadway play. No, for real. My dad, (laughs) I have this vivid memory of watching a a recorded version of the Broadway play. Yeah, we watched it with dad. I think we got it from the library or something. All six of us are like climbing all over him, but he's like such a fan of musicals. He was wrapped with attention. Right. And when Marius begins to sing A Heart Full of Love, I don't even know the guy's name. I need to look it up so that I give him credit. But he's a redhead and he's a little portly and he looks cheery and joyful and he begins to sing A Heart Full of Love. And my dad bursts out laughing and what he says is, what a fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I do think Marius comes off a little shallow in contrast to Angel Ross um, in the musical presentation. I'm just thinking of things like in the ending, he is completely soft. Like he, he, there's no rejection of Jean Valjean Mm -hmm. who tells him his story and he's like, oh my gosh, you should stay with us. And then next thing we know, Jean Valjean's like, no, I'm going to go away, which he, he doesn't do in the book. And uh, then later, uh, Tenardier reveals that he's the one who brought him out of the sewers. And, and just like Mar- there's no there's no Marius being the like uptight prejudiced Marius. Uh, <laughs> Marius of the book. He just gets to be kind of like solid and heroic throughout. Yeah. yeah. Another imp- I would say. Go ahead, Megan. Oh, I would say particularly Eddie Redmayne manages to center the character in heroism and openness and manliness. (laughs) He's so, so hot. (laughs) More than that, I don't know. I think Eddie Redmayne did his homework and found what he identified with in the character. And so the things that he drew out of Marius are there. They were in the character, but he chose the best, you know? Well, and he's also constrained by the way they've written this character for the musical. For example, perhaps the most powerful moment among three i would say there are three really really powerful moments i dreamed a dream from fontine and bring him home from valjean and i know you guys are going to want me to mention javert and stars but i'm not and we can talk about why if you want to and then marius empty chairs and empty tables empty chairs an empty chair that scene doesn't take place in the novel no. in fact we commented on the fact that marius is like is all my friends are dead oh well and then he gets <laughs> married and has a life right and yeah i think it was a really smart move on the part of the guys that wrote the musical to say, hang on, let's dwell on this and let's take Marius's character and deepen it a little bit by having Mm -hmm. him meditate on the loss, by having him meditate on childhood Mm -hmm. dying and young manhood dying. I actually would add one more thing just to deepen that interpretation. They also changed his response to Ebenine's death in a significant way with the song Mm -hmm. A Little Fall of Rain. Because talk about moments that annoyed us. When we were reading along and Eponine is dying and she hands him the letter and says, sorry, I kept this from you. He's like, you know, I'm going to hold you while you die because it's the right thing to do, but I'm not thinking about you right now. I don't really even care. And then he leaves her body by the barricade and moves on and goes to find Cosette. And it was not a moment where he was a sympathetic character for us. That's true. Again, the movie makers were like, this is a way to make him a human being and we should do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. What I expect from stage plays is for characters to be caricatures other than maybe the leading protagonist and the lead villain. And everybody else mm. is going to sort of play a stereotypical role off to one side. You've got your comedic relief character. You've got your supporting actors, etc. And it feels a little bit like the novel is actually the, the one that does that. 
in this hmm. case. And the stage play set out to vivify all the characters in a in a slightly different way. Angel Ross. Angel Ross. Mm, what a hunk. What a, <laughs> what a great character in both places, honestly. Like, I'll take the lead yes, on this it's... one. Like, I think he's, I think they read him perfectly and then wrote him two songs that do it perfectly. Yes. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I think, what what is the song called? Is it called Red and Black? Mm-hmm. That is a masterpiece, not just musically. I mean, it's a rousing theme song that gets stuck in your <laughs> head for days, which is everything you want from a musical. But also thematically, it I think it encapsulates about 400 pages of explanation yeah. in the in the Hugo novel. Yeah. It was a it was a masterpiece of interpretation. Yeah, I agree. But also he's the one I mean, when you even people who are casually familiar with the musical and who maybe haven't spent hundreds of hours pouring through different recordings, when you say Les Mis, they hear, do you hear the people sing? Right. <laughs> That's Angel Ross. He's the guy. Yeah. He gets the theme song of the whole musical. And granted, everybody mm-hmm. sings it with him, but his voice leads it. And I think right. that is so appropriate. It's a great reading of, of the novel. We are we're, we're moved in our hearts by Valjean and Javert and Fantine, et cetera. But the, the drama of Angela the period of history, your blood. Yeah. yeah the, the whole drama of the period of history and the social forces at play and the way that there is heroism, even in this failed revolution, that all comes down to Angel Ross. So they sort of, they grab him and they, they zoom out and say, this guy, this is the lens that you're supposed to look at the whole rest of the story through. He's mm-hmm. the stage on which the thing is played. And it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and yet he's still tragic right he wraps himself in the flag and dies and that's the end of him Mm -hmm. (laughs) um this is also revelatory to our listeners but miss emily and i and i say that on purpose teach (laughs) junior high classes together and we teach three in a row three days in a row in a big intense week and at the beginning of just about every junior high week ever emily sends me a tiny gif of angel ross wrapped in a flag (laughs) jumping out a window (laughs) so he's forever in my mind as a symbol of our love (laughs) oh my goodness okay i do love Um, that i especially love that scene in the movie yeah me too but there's one more thing that i liked about angel ross before we talk about something else he says to marius in the red and black song our little lives don't count at all Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a beautiful, I'm glad they didn't skip that Yeah. because that was the only part of his character that we, that we quarreled with in the book. It was the, the tragedy of him that he couldn't see the individual in front of him mm-hmm. because he was so busy thinking universally. Yeah. I loved that they managed to incorporate that into the interpretation of his character and put Marius in particular up against it. I thought that yeah, was really elegant. Red and black yeah. is interrupted by... Marius's newfound love. Right. There's a tension. I, d- I noticed it even more on this watch through than I had before. There's a tension between the personal and the uh, yeah. societal in that mm-hmm. song that is super intentional, it seems to me, and a, and a great, yeah. just a great read on on the forces in the novel. I think, yeah, Angel Ross is pretty much, is pretty much perfect. I think they He's nailed baller. it. I love that they guy. Really nailed it with him. <laughs> And I also, as sort of a blanket comment, I don't think they set out to do a lot of interpreting. I think they were just trying to be faithful. And I think the limitations of the medium are what led to some of their most brilliant moments. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. we understood this book all the way to the bottom. How are we supposed to communicate this in, you know, a two minute song? 
And so they were forced by the limitations to do some really, really brilliant things. But rarely do I see the musical writers stick their oar in and correct something. Usually they're trying to draw out something that really was there. And Andreas might be the best example of, of that. But on to Fontaine, I think. I think we should do Fontaine next. Do you guys think that what I just said holds true in that case? Uh, the deci- what do you guys think of the decision to cut? <laughs> Shoot. What's his, his name? name? Ptolemyes. Ptolemyes. Thermopylae? No, that's wrong. Thermopylae. <laughs> <laughs> Marathon? No. <laughs> uh, all we know of him is that uh, he took he slept my childhood. He slept a summer <laughs> yeah. by her side. Yep. And he was gone when, when autumn came. Yeah. What do you guys think of that? I mean, it's hmm. a time limitation thing, I'm sure. I was impressed. I mean, again, I, I think that they managed to strip the most important kernels out of her character and give them to you. Basically say, in a nutshell, here's who Fontaine is. And you get all of the emotional payoff without, well, you don't have to live alongside her for a long time. Well, I also would say you don't get to live alongside her. Mm-hmm. I think one of the wonderful things about a book in the romantic genre, which Hugo's is, as we've discussed, is that you get a lot of time with each of the characters and you live alongside them and you identify with them. And I, as a reader, enjoy that process. But this medium managed to capture what was most important about her and hand it to us in a brief moment. And I think that's powerful as well. Different, but powerful. I Dreamed a Dream is brutal to listen to it's and i don't know the best songs <laughs> i don't know how they i don't know how they did that it is absolutely heartrending and also it remains heartrending i mean i've seen a dozen different people perform it and i think it does their interpretation as a singer of the song doesn't really matter all that much like it is written perfectly to communicate that pathos you're talking about megan well, and I think the, that's down to the, the score. The music of that piece in particular captures her whole character. And it's partly it's the major notes in the background. The song mm. is tragic. And yet there's this hopeful, childish tone in the background that makes you mourn her childhood, whether she said that or not. Mm. Yep. It's a, it's, a, it's a major chord march in the background, mm-hmm. which is we associate with triumph. Marches are triumphal. And, and it's like a swelling theme song. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then there's and then she's singing a dirge over the top. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. oh, goosebumps. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Emily, anything to add on Fontaine? No, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to talk about it. But the, like that is just to me, we're talking about the musical. But then there's the additional medium of the film. And that is one of the scenes that really benefited from the filmmakers looked at the musical and said, you know, when we watch this musical, we're always going to be forced by the limitations of the stage to be removed from it. So we're looking at a spectacle, but this is our one chance to do what Hugo meant, which is zoom up into the faces of the people. Like Mm -hmm. we're humanize every idea. Every scene is shot extremely up close in the movie and man Anne Hathaway's performance of that allow it allows the characters singing to just do really amazing things subtle with. subtle acting decisions um, yeah. the other thing they did musically to enable that is and this is to some extent true on Broadway as well when you've got a live orchestra there's always a tension between acting the part as a singer 
and the actual meter and pace of the music itself. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, when you Changing see it on Broadway, the yeah, the, ch- the tempo changes a little bit and a good director of the orchestra has to speed his players up or slow them down, depending on what the singer is doing. But the decision that they made in filming this, this movie was to have a piano player off to one side while they were actually filming the scene and to record all of the vocal takes live. And so the actors were the ones setting the, the pace and they were able to just sing this melody exactly as your acting demands. And then they came along later and recorded a full orchestra over the top of the vocal track. Wow, so that's cool. I didn't know that. You'll notice if you go through and try and actually with your finger or something, keep time, it's all over the place mm-hmm. throughout. And it doesn't even matter because it's just, it's dramatically moving to watch these actors' faces while they're, while they're singing. Also, how do they get such good singers? I mean, mm-hmm. I know for sure that not all great actors are also great singers, but yeah. <laughs> there's not a miss among them in this cast. Eddie Redmayne's voice is a revelation. The dude is incredible. Yeah. So I, that's a, that's a kind of kind of amazing to me. And the fact that he can keep that up while like sobbing, it's yeah. amazing. Oh my gosh, what a moving <laughs> actor performance! Yeah. Whew. Okay. Javert. Yeah, I was going to say you, so all of them are. (laughs) Yeah, now you're being so nice. When we were watching this movie, the three of us getting ready for this, uh, Ian was not so nice about Javert. No, should I I give my, and then you guys can soften. Okay. Yeah. So in a cast where they did such a brilliant job of balancing great acting performances with either sufficient or really superlative vocal performances, Russell Crowe was a giant miss. Oh, I think he was a giant miss. And here's the thing. Great actor. He embodied the spirit of Javert from the novel beautifully. But you have got to have a singing voice in order for the tune Stars, which is his big moment, to come off well. And here's why. I think Stars is a, in contrast to Bring Him Home or I Dreamed a Dream or Empty Chairs and Empty Tables or Do You Hear the People Sing? And there's just, this whole musical is littered with brilliant melodies. And stars is a little half baked. And I think they did it on what? purpose because they're looking to mirror a character that is himself very, very rigid. And his whole, his whole ethos is justice, justice, justice. And so to write a, a melody with surprise in it doesn't make any sense. And so what they do instead is write a very straight ahead melody. And the point of it and the reason it's satisfying is that it builds to a crescendo vocally that he he his his pride and his pathos and his earnestness towards justice mm-hmm. and the law builds to a crescendo and then he holds this the highest note in the song for a long time at the end while the orchestra cascades around him that's what makes it satisfying not the fact that the melody is well constructed or that it's surprising or that it's uh it's moving in and of itself and hmm. they chose an actor who cannot a hit or b sustain that climactic note the whole thing sounds like a to me, as a musician, that whole moment in the film sounds like a community theater rendition of Les Mis. Wow, brutal. Oh my goodness. This is great. I mean, I'm glad we've got this recorded. This is a hot take. <laughs> I did not like it's, it at all. I did not like it. You're not alone. Everyone said that. And I was like, oh, I kind of like Russell Crowe. <laughs> I love, no, let me be clear. I love Russell Crowe. I, he, the, the moments where he is talking are wonderful. The moments right. where he is singing are not wonderful. Okay, so I don't entirely disagree with you. I don't. I don't entirely disagree with you. I can see what you're saying, and I felt that it his performance lacked 
punch as well. But if I imagined him like an old washed up rock singer who's now singing with the voice that's left over, it was really great. You know, (laughs) I thought, okay, his style doesn't fit what's going on here. But I think that his chops as an actor carried the performance anyway, and he wasn't too in the way. You know, I don't think that he was the shining star of this performance, but I didn't find him to be distracting. Mm hmm. Perhaps your intensity, and and mine as well, which I have tempered, um, (laughs) comes from the versions that we have listened to where Javert almost steals the show. He is so captivating. And this, thematically even, the presence of a perfect justice and the clinging to that idea as the thing that will balance society. And it's paramount to Javert that justice be served for everyone in the whole story. I think stars needs to be strong for that to happen Mm -hmm. and it didn't in the movie so i agree with you that something was lost but i didn't find it to be super duper distracting if you weren't paying close attention fair enough what do you think emily i don't know i i can see both sides i see that he does need to steal the show in some ways because of that line that right before he commits suicide he says something to the effect of um javert jean valjean like there can't be both one of us Mm -hmm. only one of us can exist in this world um and so the big question of the musical and end of the book even is which one which one is it is it jean valjean or is it javert is it justice or mercy yeah but um i don't know russell crowe does i i his kind of uh I, megan's uh analogy with a washed up rock star like this idea that he's He's served a lot of time and he's tired and right. still committed. I, the kind of gravelly, there's something about the gravelly tone that just doesn't bother me so much in his singing. Fair enough. I think here's a question. How old did you imagine Javert to be in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. That is a great question. He He's introduced to us as a young hothead is the way that I read right. it. Right. But the book takes place over, what, 15 years or something? Well, yeah, he's. I think he, it makes sense for him to be the exact same age as Jean Valjean, like that they're just entire hmm. foils. That's interesting. I would have put him, I would have cast him younger than Valjean like, well, quite a bit. I actually imagined him younger than Jean Valjean through the whole book. And I, I can't remember where we got his age detail, but I think it might be important that Jean Valjean is older than him. And it's one of the things that I wondered about leaving the movie in particular. Javert hasn't lived as long as Jean Valjean to need the mercy that Jean Valjean is clinging to. Right. He hasn't experienced his own failings the same way. Do you I don't know. That was my interpretation, maybe. When does Jean Valjean get arrested for stealing a loaf of bread? Isn't he like 19? Yeah, he's a teenager. Well, that's what that see. And then Javert is his is his captor or like is his prison guard. So that's why. But, but, but Javert joins his story. the barge later. Right. He's the he's the last guard to have charge over this prison barge before Valjean escapes after being in prison for 20 years or whatever. And okay. he was young to his post because of his ferocity. He's one of the youngest. Yeah, guards. yeah I think I think sense. Javert is probably supposed to be about 10 to 15 years younger than Jean Valjean because it's really difficult not to see Valjean as a father figure to Javert, one that he's resisting, but one that has wisdom Javert does not have. And so I think that's interesting, which so to go back to Russell Crowe's casting, what do you think? They definitely went in the direction of foils, roughly the same age, both graying, 
They definitely age Hugh Jackman way faster than they age Russell Crowe. Dude, he looks like a cadaver <laughs> yeah. by the end. That really makeup artist deserves an award. Um, actually, I think that makeup artist was nominated for one. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I Look, at the end of the day, the, it's a movie. The acting chops have to be front and center. And so I'm okay with Russell Crowe. I thought he was a great Javert. <laughs> But the extent to which this is a musical, big fail. Could it be that the Andrews family just can never forgive Russell Crowe for what he did to Meg Ryan? And so he's oh, like, oh, that's part of it. <laughs> I wasn't we thinking about Meg that, Ryan but that's funny. With our whole hearts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. okay. Who hurt you, Meg? We won't kill him. <laughs> Who hurt you? So one more detail on Javert. And I don't know that they do this always. But I think I remember reading this somewhere, and then the only times I've ever seen the musical, whether I was watching a video recording of of the Broadway show or attending the Broadway show, the same singer story of us. Oh, I will. But the the (laughs) same singer generally plays both the bishop and Javert. What really? Yes, which is very interesting. They usually don't recast the bishop. Usually, Javert plays both. Actually, no. You're right. When we saw it. A couple years ago here in Spokane, it was the same guy. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about that. Which I think is really interesting. I don't know if that's just casting limitations and they're the um, both parts are pitched for the same vocal range. And so he's the guy that does it. But if it is a thematic comment, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. That, that same guy is both the epitome of justice and mercy in yeah. the story. Well, I think thank that's God pretty they cool. didn't have Russell Crowe play the... Oh, I know. Cole Wilkinson oh. is the bishop. <laughs> By the way, if you're not a huge fan of the musical, you may not have known this, but the old man that plays the bishop in the film is the man who originated the role of Jean Valjean and is, in my estimation, the best He's Valjean the one we think is was. the best, yeah. right. If and you're asking the Andrews like, family, he's the best. It's such a beautiful... I mean, I can see the beauty and the thematic decision of having Javert be the bishop, but... The, you wouldn't do the, it in a just, film. The beauty of having Colm Wilkinson play... The, oh, the, the original Jean Valjean having graduated to become yes. the bishop is just great. amazing. Absolutely great. Okay, who are we? Who are we missing? Who have we not? Eponine. Jean Valjean. No, no. Dude? Oh, Ep- and Eponine. Valjean is last. It's Eponine. Okay, all right. We did talk about Eponine briefly, but what I, I, <laughs> what I would love to introduce into the conversation about her is that I think it's super interesting that her song, um, on my own is echoed in some of the strangest places mm. like the echoes that take place in this musical if you I, I took note of a couple of them while we were watching they're just super fascinating the way that melodically the mm. song um, the characters echo each other but on my own is echoed well one of the places it's echoed is at the end when Cosette tells you know, I forbid you now to die mm-hmm. I'll obey I will try, right? That's on my own. Ooh. So there's a lot of ways in which her song, even though it's a brief moment, uh, expands to fill the whole musical as like a, a counterpoint. So mm. I wonder thematically what that means. I love that. Immediately, it makes me think that if there's a character who's suffering, usually they think of themselves as isolated. And yet what we discovered reading the book is... In your moment of isolation, you are never actually truly alone. It's yeah. one of the themes. Yeah, God is present in that moment. Mm-hmm. On my own, yeah, not not true. Never on your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other major echo, and this is this is kid stuff because it's so obvious, but the other major echo is "Look Down," mm-hmm. which oh, is both yeah. the prison song at the beginning that epitomizes the state of the poor in this era, 
And then also the overriding melody of the conflict between Javert and Valjean over Fantine's grave, which is super duper And again, cool. I noticed this one for, for the first time in our last viewing. Again, when Jean Valjean is climbing out of the sewers at last and he's got Marius on his shoulders and he's so disgusting and covered in poop <laughs> that you can't, you can't really think about anything else. But there, the song in the background is look down yeah. and you look up past Jean Valjean to see Javert looking down at him. Mm-hmm. I thought that mm-hmm. was so beautiful. It was like the melody and the movie maker. All well, and it finally happened. He did look down. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Because that's the and moment where, kill he, him. where he lets him go. Yeah. Oh, man. Ooh. The moment in the movie that that isn't in the musical where he pins his, his uh, or maybe this is in the musical, actually, oh, now that I yes. think about it, where he pins his badge his on Gavroche. Just so, so beautiful. Humanizes the character even a step more. Yep. Back to the look down for a second, though. Did you guys notice, and this was a great move on the filmmaker's part, because I think it's thematically relevant, and I remember the scene when Javert commits suicide in the novel. In the way that they filmed it, he's walking along the parapet, right? The, the yeah. railing of the bridge. And he's to the to having just sung stars before. There are stars visible overhead. He is looking down into the water instead. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Which was great. I, so many moments, actually, in mm-hmm. this film were visually stunning. Like the, the curtains hanging in, in the hospital where Fantine dies, each of them have a cross woven into them. So when she looks through at Cosette and is having a vision, she's looking through the cross to get to Cosette. And when she looks yeah. at Valjean as he walks in the room, she's looking through the cross to see Valjean. The one you about suffering the eye. in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Emily. The one Ian pointed it out while we were watching that uh, in the barricades, they have an old advertisement painted on the wall behind. It's kind of like the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg or whatever. Yes. But there's a, there's a big eye Gatsby. watching the... When, God, like, when Valjean is singing the, the prayer. Mm, yeah. Right behind yeah. his head, there's this giant eye looking down from the sky. Or at the very beginning, when Jean Valjean is first realizing he has a soul in all of the epic songs at the start, um, he's lying in bed and thinking about stealing all of the silver. And on the ceiling is a picture of Christ looking down mm-hmm. at him. Mm-hmm. And he like makes eye contact with it. And there's a silent scene where he's looking at Christ before he goes to do this thing. Lots so of good. visual imagery. So, mm-hmm. so cool. Well, and then, and then these, one of the things Hugo is on about is the, like you were saying, Emily, that moment of weakness or loneliness or um, the, the pinnacle of human suffering is actually also the closest that you are to God. And in the film, what they decided to do when Valjean tears up his yellow ticket and has just been told he has a soul is he runs out to the edge of this giant cliff and there's this beam of sunlight on the top of him and he is miserable. This is the lowest that he'll be for the rest of the story until he climbs into the sewers. But uh, anyway, this is for him a moment of destruction and breaking. And yet it's also the start of a brand new life with God. And so visually, they emphasize that in the way they shoot the scene. So good. Oh, man. I will yeah, never because... not cry when the violins oh, start there. So oh, the violins start. <laughs> well, as the music soars and takes your, your heart upwards, he casts the yellow ticket up in the air and the wind catches it and you, you leave him behind and you, the reader, you travel up, which I just think is so beautiful. If we're thinking about direction as one but of the images in the story. Severely downward as you enter into, into, Paris. into Paris. Into the city, yeah. yeah um speaking of echoes while we're still kind of talking about that the one that our brother Aaron noticed that I had never noticed before with um lovely ladies being echoed by the washer the women cleaning up after the barricade Mm -hmm. talking about the 
the men, young men who died mm-hmm. turning that, turning yeah yeah that there's like a there's a relationship between it's the miserables right lovely ladies is like this kind of raunchy yeah about the prostitutes uh, yeah but mm-hmm. then it's connected to the young men who died and the women left behind to clean up after them it's it's this is a this is a tell too for growing up in the in the center for lit family i guess but (laughs) one of the one of the marks of a really great musical is this reusing of melodies and usually you get one instance of it on the front on the front end during the rising action of the play and then you get the second instance in the falling action and right. so the, the, the two halves goes yeah, in the denouement. Exactly. The reprise goes in the denouement. So the two halves of the musical mirror one another. And there's a different light cast on that same melody by the climactic moment of the piece. One of my very favorite things. It's so cool. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but there is one that Javert uses. And it's when he's the first time that he sees Jean Valjean lifting the cart. or And now he's Monsieur Madeleine. And they think that he's the mayor. And it's the first time that Javert has the suspicion, like, I recognize this guy. The melody that he sings is one that is later used by Thenardier. And Fontaine. And Fontaine. I didn't know that. Yeah. Fontaine uses it when uh, Javert is is witnessing her in a scene of degradation, Mm. basically. It's when Valjean and Javert both approach and Valjean tries to help her. Javert is watching, but she says she echoes his Javert's uh, theme. Mm-hmm. So Don't touch like me, leave me alone. Same tune. Ugly, like the ugly depths of. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all that's left to do, my friends, is talk about Valjean. Hugh Jackman, well, yes. Acting. Hugh Jackman, no. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, Jackman yes. <laughs> I think. I love that they cast Hugh Jackman for all the reasons. I think that his acting was was stellar. I think that his physique was perfect. I was trying to imagine as I was reading this book how I would imagine him if I had not seen the movie already. But I couldn't actually get away from Hugh Jackman mm. as I read this whole novel because he's with the giant shoulders and the fact that he's so, so tall and hulking. You believe him that he is still a strong man, even you know, later to his 70s or 80s or yeah. however old he is when he dies, you know? Same for uh, the BBC when they cast Dominic West. Yeah, mm-hmm. also a good casting Basically choice. the same. <laughs> they, yeah, oh my gosh, they are very similar. <laughs> yeah. My only thought before I'd seen the film, when I just knew about the casting, I thought, he's too pretty. He's way too mm. pretty to be Valjean. I mean, this, this guy needs to look that. like, this guy <laughs> needs to look like death warmed over. Something They cat pulled dragon. that off. That was no big deal. With the, with the shaven head, and, and the bloodshot, the bloodshot eyes. eyes and whoa! What Do you a think that job. he had to walk around with that haircut for <laughs> for a while? I wouldn't put it past one of those skull cap things that makes you look bald, and then they painted little hairs on it. I don't know. And Hathaway <laughs> actually got the pixie cut. He did so. yeah. in that scene. That's why really the tears are real. It. Yes. Oh my gosh, I would cry too. No kidding. <laughs> really, I didn't know yeah. that detail. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. She just really made a entrance at that point in her career. She was like, I'm more than the princess. Of <laughs> I am not the princess diaries anymore. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. I thought Valjean was great. I'll I'll be the I'll be the guy with the quibble. I know, I know. So bring him home. 
here's the great thing about about Broadway is that because there's two things going on, telling a great story, acting the part, designing the sets, all, all of that, the production itself happens over here, but then it's also songwriting at its best and it's storytelling using songwriting. And so a really famous musical, other people will tour and perform the songs from that musical. And so Bring Him Home is justly famous, even outside the context of Les Mis. It's not Bring Him Home from Les Mis, it's Bring Him Home. And it's a legendary tune that Broadway has produced. And so you'll see guys with Broadway aspirations or guys that are washed up or guys that haven't gotten a leading role yet will tour with a band and they do an evening of show tunes and they select a bunch of show tunes from a bunch of different places and bring him home for a tenor is always on that list. So I have probably, I bet you I've seen a hundred different Broadway caliber voices perform this song and all of them except Hugh Jackman use their falsetto to sing, bring him home. And Hugh Jackman uses his chest. And I don't know why. The, the decision completely bemuses me. It's such a beautiful melody and it's so delicate. And it was written to be sung in one's falsetto. And he instead pushes it out like he is singing a, a battle song with his well, chest. Well, that's actually what I was going to say. I thought this time, because... Okay, when I, I'm full confession, when I first saw it, I thought exactly what you're about to say, which is it suffered because of that. I did not like it. It was grating rather than an aria that soothed me and I was annoyed. But this time going through it, I watched the way that he acted it and it was reminiscent. If we're thinking of the reprise situation, it was reminiscent, though not the same chord progression of his song, Who Am I? The, the battle idea or the wrestling with God concept and the looking up at the sky and, and there being a tone of like raging in his voice, that was present in this song in a way that it wouldn't have been if he'd used his falsetto. So I thought this time that maybe it was a choice an acting on Hugh Jackman's part. Yeah, an acting choice to make the tone of his relationship to this God who's put him in this situation consistent. Hmm. They emphasize, in a way that I'm not sure I've heard in any of the other Broadway recordings, they emphasize a turning in his character in that song when he says, and I'll be gone, or, and I am old and will soon be gone, Hugh Jackman. That's like a realization. Yeah, Yeah. like, oh my gosh, like, I actually do need to save him because somebody has to take care of Cosette when Mm -hmm. I am gone and I can't do it forever. Again, similar to my quibbles about Javert, although the Javert one is more far reaching. I have nothing to say but good things about Hugh Jackman's acting performance. It was insane. And every other song that he sings was spectacular as well. He's got a beautiful voice. I just, that decision in that tune was confusing to me. But I I mean, I like your read, Megan. I think it's true what you say. Just to finish off my read, as I'm still thinking about it, to see if it holds, I think it does. At least at least I think the director of the movie agrees with me because he sets up the scene in a similar way. The ending of Bring Him Home, you know, Marius is sleeping against the barricade or whatever. And Jean Valjean is standing over him and has his hand out in blessing and is looking upwards and singing in that tone that annoys us, singing his last note at mm-hmm. the sky. And it's too high and you're it's grating because you feel like you can't quite hit it. But the camera flies upward the same way that it does when he hits the last note and the strings begin mm-hmm. at the end of of who am i it's a hinge for sure mm-hmm. in the storytelling in the way they write the musical it's definitely a hinge and i and so yeah i, I i'll go in and think about that megan i think that improves my read of that <laughs> of that scene but i will say um to our listeners and maybe we can include a couple of of links in the show notes to this episode i can send you to a vocal performance of that song that will make you cry and cry and cry. It is so <laughs> good. 
So Well, look no further than Colin Wilkinson in the 10th anniversary edition. Yeah, that was brilliant. Favorite. That was brilliant. Also, Alfie Bow does a brilliant job. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many Isn't great that voices that have taken that. Did Stranger Things do one, too? Oh, yeah, he did. He, yeah, yeah. Yes, he he did uh, the role of Gavroche when he was a little tiny kid. Mm-hmm. So he's a Perfect. huge Les Mis fan. Yeah, he's Broadway star bona fide. He's bona fide. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, guys, we give it a big thumbs up, right? I mean, what a film. <laughs> Have we told the story of how I took you to see Les Mis for the first time on stage? Oh, yeah, no, on we haven't. Pod? I think we might have told it in an episode before, but Maybe I just we feel did. like it does belong in this episode. I don't remember it, so tell okay, me Okay, well, so with the background that I gave to, to start the episode about what a what a important place this musical holds in my young life and and growing up with my family and all of that. Emily had the genius idea one year for my birthday, wasn't it? Or was it Christmas? It was your birthday. I think yeah, it was like my birthday. Two or three years ago. Two or three years ago. I had never seen the show in person and the touring Broadway crew came through to do Les Mis. And so we got tickets, but we, we didn't have the money for like orchestra level seats. We were quite literally in the, the back of the no top. Sleeves. Of the, I'm not saying we were like, I'm not saying that, but then it was actually four rows forward from the back. No, my head was resting on the back wall. <laughs> okay. But it doesn't matter because like Emily was saying, it's a no, spectacle, is- right? You're sitting far enough back that like, whoa, you get to see everything and you can't see the faces of the, of the singers, but who cares? You can hear them and it'll be great. Or at least so I thought. It's actually really important to this story that your head was not against the back wall, that there was actually a row behind us. Wait, I thought I was, I thought they were sitting in front of us. No, they were behind us. Oh, okay. Okay. So I was (laughs) building anticipation. (laughs) Sitting behind us or in front of us. I don't remember. But Emily says it's behind us was an old. First, you have to explain. Do you want to tell the story? You can well, tell yeah. the story. That's if you're going to tell fine. it wrong, then yes. All right, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll let you. I just have to insert to say that it was your birthday, which is in June, which is when I bought you the tickets. But the performance was like in August, and it was okay. brutally, brutally hot in in the theater. And we were up oh, high, wow. and heat rises, and it wasn't well air conditioned, and so we're like sweating buckets. Like oh, no. I am drenched, and my legs are sticking to the chair, and so it's already not exactly the most comfortable experience of all time situation okay okay it's it's a little uncomfortable but my excitement knows absolutely no bounds i am stoked to be seeing this (laughs) legendary show until we get up there and we've gotten through some of the opening numbers and the singers were good i mean it was a matinee so who knows i mean the the um the backups just sing the matinees usually and so I, we didn't know if we were going to get great vocalists or not. And they were, and ouch, I was just having mm. the best time of my life. And then behind us, I hear this aged, decrepit voice lean to his wife and go, what's going on? <laughs> is that oh. the, is that that prostitute lady singing again? Oh. And it turns out there was an old couple sitting behind us who couldn't hear very well had never seen the show, doesn't don't know the story, and could not figure it out. And they spent the entire oh, no. performance at the top of their aged lungs, shouting back and forth <laughs> to one another, trying to figure out what's happening. What did he say? The, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> Emily, what are some of the choice quotations? Uh, 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 they couldn't. Is that that? Is that girl? Is that the little girl from the beginning? I think right. I couldn't figure exactly. out who Coz that was. That's the little, little girl, girl from the beginning. Uh, Who's she? Like um, where's the guillotine? Where's the guillotine? Literally, where's the guillotine? I mean, it was it was perfect. It was the best 
funny version of seeing this play that there ever was. Wow. They were disgusted by the Tenardiers, even though they didn't really understand who they were or why they were there. I mean, affronted. Didn't like their costume choices. (laughs) Affronted. Generally affronted. I mean, it was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. So I think I need to see it again. Well, I think you probably do. And I also might need to cough up the money for some floor seats. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Better seats next time. But uh, it was it was great. It was a it was a a wonderful entry into the Broadway scene. (laughs) (laughs) It was a classic and a a classic Andrews entry. (laughs) Something like that always happens to us. It's it's the Andrews vortex, you know. Uh, Well, friends, this has just been a wonderful what year ish. Yeah. Yeah. We about a year. We did it in a year. We did it in a year. Man, oh man, what fun. We can't can't believe our luck that there are people out there who want to listen to us kibitz about books because it's our favorite. And so we are really excited to bring you some more episodes. Expect a little teaser in the next, I don't know, couple of weeks. We're going to describe to you the plan for where we're going next. And we're really excited to bring you yet another edition of How to Eat an Elephant. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime... Look for some show notes. I will. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to send you some recommendations. And here's here's a bunch of YouTube links. Go watch these guys do the singing because man, oh man, do they do the singing. Anyways, (laughs) thank you all for your attention. And until we meet again online, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.